0: This is Bad Movies We Love, part of the Scheiss Podcast Network. Hello everybody, and welcome once again to another episode of Bad Movies... We love. I am your host, Nick Scheist, and I'm a little nasally today, but we power on. Season 2 is just rolling right along at
1: this point. I've got another episode that needs editing that's in the can.
0: That'll come out next Friday, and that's Cool World. I think I'm recording another one at the beginning of next week, and
1: I know that I have several left on deck that I have not scheduled just
0: yet but they are coming so stay tuned because we got some good stuff on the way i'm joined today by another friend from the Scheist international film club that's mr scott cole from music city drive-in and he brought us 1995's empire records
1: Oh, no, you basically just stole $10 million from us.
2: What is going on?
1: And then he kisses her bare, dirty foot.
2: He just tells her everything's gonna be fine and she freaks out.
1: Your employee just robbed you. Like, call the cops, what are you doing? So I seem to win straight to video. Roulette pays off way better if you know it's Black 22. Put your money on Black 22 and get paid off like 35 to one. Why are you going to play craps at two to one?
2: What are you doing? I mean, I guess you paid for Guar, but I mean, that, that right out. You got to cut that.
1: Hello, welcome to the show and thank you for adjusting the time so that we can make this work.
2: No problem, man. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk about this movie. It's
1: been in my life a long time. Surprisingly, I've known about this movie for a long time, but I never had actually seen it until last night. So it was a brand oh. new experience for me. So what I'm finding out is that the more I do this show, the more people are bringing to me things that I haven't seen, which is fun. So uh, I want to give you the chance, though, to tell me why... We ended up settling on Empire Records as your choice for bad movies we love.
2: Okay. Yeah. I'm really interested actually because I've never talked to someone who's just seen it for the first time later on as an adult. So <laughs> I'm curious to hear what you say. Okay. So I, there's a, kind of two ways to go at it. The first would be that when I was a kid, I was obsessed with movies and my parents allowed me to get Entertainment Weekly. And so when they would have the movie preview, the quarterly movie previews, I remember seeing. This segment on what was then called Empire and it had all the cats listed and a picture of them. <clears throat> and I remember thinking it sound, it looked really cool and it sounded like the plot sounded like something I'd be interested in because we used to go to like tower records and have a good time. so I was like, this sounds like right up my alley. And then I forgot about it because it never came out when it was supposed to, which eventually turned into Warner Brothers buried it because it had a bad test screening. But anyway, um, then it came back into my life later because my sister was three years older than me. And she was in middle school, like right in that mid-90s pocket when like it was Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Smashing Pumpkins, like all that grungy, what I considered cool alternative music. She was really into all that. So just because I was allowed to sometimes be around her and her friends, I I just reveled in all that cool music and stuff and that culture. And so her and her friends rented one night and I watched it with them and became obsessed with it instantly. They were really into it too, but I was just like, I had seen, that may be the first ensemble movie I'd ever seen, because now I'm like looking back and it probably informs why I'm like really into Robert Altman and stuff. Okay. <laughs> just movies with tons of characters going on, but obviously the movie was great. I bought the soundtrack because I was really into that. I was a little bit disappointed that the soundtrack actually has about a third of the songs that are in the movie. <laughs> There's a lot of songs in the movie but um yeah so anyway i became obsessed with it then then i had to wait for because if you remember when vhs's used to come out you couldn't always buy them right away there were certain ones you could but some you had to wait a few months for them to come out so like specifically specifically remember the day i was at media play checking the VHS and saw it there on the shelf nearly passed out made my parents buy it for me and that's pretty much the end of that. Yeah, that that was sold from then on.
1: Taking us all the way back to VHS. Mm-hmm. And I mean, this movie released uh, in 95, I think. Yeah. Um, but you said Warner Brothers buried it. Do you know how long that it was held back from its release?
2: I think it was, if not a full year, maybe like a nine months or something. I remember it took it a while. I think it was in the fall 94 movie preview of entertainment weekly i'm pretty sure but um i know that and we can get into more but i know that they they did a test screening it didn't go well warner brothers did what they did a lot back then i found out later which is they would bury the movie if <laughs> they didn't think it was going to make money but before they did that they cut the hell out of it like they cut it so much they cut 40 minutes out of the movie apparently cut three characters out of it so oh, wow. There's certain criticisms I have about the movie now that I think are have a lot to do with them just taking a razor and cutting the hell out of the movie. So,
1: yeah, yeah it's pretty brisk at an hour and 30 minutes. Yeah. But in my imagination, where I have my 90 minute movie club, this is a good one to have that yeah. gets in under that 90 minute mark or right at it. So, I think that's fair enough. But you had mentioned the cast, and I mean, the cast is like stacked and a lot of these actors went on to do a lot more after this. And I'm going to get to one of the reviews later that mentioned something about that. But I mean, you've got Liv Tyler. She's front and center on the poster, even though I don't know that she's the main character. Like she kind of comes in a little bit later and she's one of several characters. I don't know if there is a main character, but her Renee Zellweger, Ethan Embry, uh, Robin Tooney. Johnny Whitworth, Roy Cochran, who I really hadn't seen in much aside from Scanner Darkly. So I wasn't really like in tune with him having uh, a sizable role in a film. So it was a nice first for me to see that as well. And then Anthony LaPaglia and Debbie, was that Mazar? Um, Yeah, really like incredible cast. And I think looking back at it, it seems like a lot of other maybe like high school ensemble movies, but this is not set in high school. This is kids that are maybe around that high school age that are all working. You know, that's not something that you really see a lot of in kind of like coming of age stories where you get Johnny Whitworth's character, who's really going to confess his feelings for another character. I mean, like there's a lot of stuff that exists in these other Uh, similar films around that era and from the eighties where you get all these characters having complex relationships. And this is like, rather than the politics of high school, this is the politics of the work environment, which is not something that I had seen a lot of actually out of, you know, films from that era. So it was really refreshing to see them take this story, give these characters uh, similar motivations, but all have them, be working all have them ultimately coming together for a common goal which is something that you really don't see that much in uh, like high school stories either so I thought this was really refreshing and one of the things that I came away thinking was like I'm really curious to see what critics said about it that they didn't like it like what went wrong at the test screening that was like this movie is uh, so bad that we have to bury it for a year and hope that people just forget about it, and then we'll release it when word of mouth isn't so
2: bad. Yeah, so it's interesting because my what I would imagine is because it they cut a lot out of it, like forty minutes of it, I imagine it was probably maybe a little slower paced, maybe a little bit. Um, I mean, maybe a little bit more serious. I feel like the cuts they made are trying to like. Make it funnier. even if It's not particularly funny. It's like they're trying with the editing to like make it a better rhythm for it. Scene if scenes were longer and if characters were better developed, which is a problem in the movie as it stands. Sort of like some of some scenes just without actually ending. <laughs> they just like cut. So it's like I don't know. It's it's not the cleanest editing job, but my guess because I. To be honest, I remember I kept up with what Siskel and Ebert said. They didn't even talk about it on their show. I think Ebert wrote a print review, which I know he hated it, um, but I didn't read other reviews because it kind of hurt my feelings when it came out to read them. <laughs> I was like, don't talk about my movie. But it is interesting what you were saying about their age because the only one you ever hear talk about like school is, well, these here, live Tyler. She's in school, I guess. She's a senior or something because she's studying and trying to get into Harvard. AJ talks about art school. But yeah, they're all in that middle ground between the two where you're not sure. Yeah, it's like they fall right in there in the working world, like you said. And they do have a common goal they're trying to accomplish, which is pretty rare, like you said. Yeah, and like Rory Cochran, I had seen only in Dazing and Fuse, which is funny because there is a Dazing and Fuse sticker on the the cash register. I don't know if you clocked that. They have a little Dazing and Fuse sticker on the cash register. I was like, no, that's kind of weird that they would do that because he's in both movies, but whatever but yeah he's he's really good he i almost consider him the lead in a way but Liz yeah, tyler was. i think that's uh, fair Liz tyler was at that point i think i only knew her from the aerosmith videos <laughs> like she'd been in two aerosmith videos and those were kind of back when videos were popular <laughs> so yeah yeah but so she was probably like the biggest name they had at the time i would say yeah
0: before we move on in the show here's a quick word from our sponsor howdy partner When you've been riding your trusty steed all day in the hot desert sun and you're looking for a quick pick-me-up at your local saloon you might just be looking for a pickle up until the late 1800s pickles were considered a stimulant just like coffee or tobacco that's because pickle juice is loaded with electrolytes containing both potassium and magnesium Pickles are full of beneficial probiotics that work with gut health. They're rich in beta-carotene, which your body converts into vitamin A for cell growth, and they help curb spikes in blood sugar, too. Osethi was the first cowboy in the West to recognize the benefits of pickles, and legend has it that he started the business right out of his own boots that were still on his feet. We're used to carry around an emergency pickle for that jolt of energy that also helped fight off dehydration in the blistering desert heat. Today, Osethy's Boot Brine Pickles are still made the old-fashioned way, starting with a well-worn pair of authentic cowboy boots, a few bags of discarded cucumbers from the grocer, and a whole bunch of salty, vinegary piss. When you need that authentic trickle pickle, tell those Vlasic Pickles to piss off and get yourself some Oseth's Old-Fashioned Boot Brine Pickles. Ooh, ooh, he's pissing in your boots.
1: Yeah, this is kind of like the height of the MTV era. Yeah. Um, but kind of like going back to the character dynamic. I, I like that they hid the kind of like social identity of the kids outside of the workplace. A lot of films that deal with uh, kids of this age are going to college. It's about The dynamic that they have within the confines of the school and so in this by not identifying them as like oh she goes to this school he goes to this school it's not like oh he's from the wrong side of the track she goes to the preppy school it's just like hey they're working young adults and they're trying to find their way in the world and it's like it's maybe a territory that had not really been crossed too much before when making films about young people it's like either you're kids in grade school or you're in high school going through kind of like the typical oh my hormones are raging and like you know the the cliched kind of stuff that happened a lot throughout the 80s and a lot of high school movies like there's a lot of good movies that came out of that but they all seem to follow like fairly consistent plot points and so with this and making it this big ensemble and giving these characters identity that exists outside of the school environment you got some like interesting stuff that may have actually made for a much better film. Had they not cut the 40 minutes because you've got Robin Suni, who's very clearly dealing with severe depression, suicidal ideation, and they don't do it in a way that is kind of like this throwaway cliche, like, Oh, she's that girl. It's like, no, she's dealing with something. They don't really get into it. Like the first time we meet her, she just shows up and shaves her head, which, Hey, I mean, that takes some serious stones to do that, especially like as a young woman. And you know, that when you cut your hair, your roles are going to be limited after that for a while. So like kudos to her for stepping in and doing that. But there's a scene with her and uh, Anthony LaPaglia a little bit later where she's doing like payroll or something. And he comes in on her and she's in one of the record booths just working. And, you know, he stops and he's like, are you okay? Like if you need somebody to talk to and like, They obviously don't have like a perfect relationship, but he says something about her mom and she quickly tells him that like, hey, I wish I knew where my mom was, too. So that way, you know, I could talk to her. And so there's a lot of character background that goes into that. And it's not just a cliche with her. I didn't feel that way. I felt like they actually took the time to give her substance in her depression and I would have liked to see more of that. And it kind of becomes like a joke a little bit later on where they're like, we're gonna have this fake funeral for you. And like that all that takes the tone and like turns it in a different direction when it felt like it was a lot more serious of a problem when we first kind of see her shaving her head. They see that she's got the cuts on her wrist and her co-workers are like, hey, you need to like tell me about this because like we're concerned. And so I felt that like was very substantive for this time, especially. And later on, we find out that Liv Tyler's character is like doing speed or Adderall or something like that. And it kind of just like buried that until way late in the movie until it, it, until it made sense for them to have like a blow up about it. Right, right. But it's like, so you've got a character dealing with addiction. You've got another character dealing with depression. You've got uh, Joe uh, Anthony LaPaglia's character who is basically, like, in the middle of his life in comparison to these kids, and he's at a crossroads career-wise of whether or not he wants to, like, leave the business altogether or go independent. Debbie Mazur's character is not happy with her job, but she is working, and (laughs) she doesn't really have a choice, but confronted with the reality of it, she's like, okay, I'm gonna quit. You've got Rex Manning, who was a superstar at some point and now has kind of like come to the point where he is at Empire Records and he doesn't really want to be there. He feels like he's better than being in that environment. Uh, Renee Zellweger, she's a character who she's at a crossroads of her own where she wants to embody like this type of character, but also doesn't want to be like pigeonholed. So there's a lot of texture there that I felt that maybe got overlooked because of how quick things are happening and maybe how goofy like Ethan Embry's character is like they don't dwell on the stuff that makes the movie substantial for long enough I think it just turns into like hey we're going to turn up the music and he's going to dance and be goofy and he's going to eat this gigantic uh pot brownie and start hallucinating and I mean, that's fun, but it's a very different movie than a guy like Rory, who he he initially steals the money from the take at the end of the night and goes to Atlantic City trying to win money so that they can buy the record store and keep it open. Basically, like, hey, this is about supporting independent music. And later in the film, he says he hates money. But these are all like very complex characters for young people that are not just going through the motions of like the typical teenage behavior and somehow like that just got lost in translation a little bit.
2: Yeah. I think what you end up with <clears throat> in the edit excuse me, is a lot of behavior without motivation. Sometimes like the people are doing things like, so with the Robin Tunney character, it is interesting when she's having that conversation with Joe Uh, because he's actually kind of trying to be a surrogate parent to these kids like in different scenes with different kids he's like really trying to like he comes in to help her he tells her she's doing a good job at the end of that conversation which is kind of sweet and then like rory cochran has a line later that i don't i still don't fully understand i've seen the movie about 20 times but he says something that like joe took him from his parents gave himself gave him to the state and joe saved him and like raised him on there's something weird there that like they don't really spend a lot of time on. They just kind of brush it over. And with the Deb thing, I was gonna say, like, or the Robin Tunney. I did read that they were considering Angelina Jolie for that part. Like she was up mm. for it, but they said she had a an energy that was very intense that wasn't gelling with the other female characters. <laughs> and that makes sense because you kind of need you. They kind of shift Robin Tunney's character very suddenly, in my opinion. Like she she changes her. Demeanor very suddenly after the speed scene. <laughs> and she's suddenly very more calm and helpful and sweet to the other girls in a different way. Um, I wonder if that was more uh explained in the longer version. I know, I don't know for a fact, but I guarantee Debbie Mazar's part was a lot bigger in the <laughs> original one because she's just kind of in and out, just quitting. Like we don't really understand much about her at all. Like, and you wouldn't cast Debbie Mazar in that role at that time, I don't think, unless she had something she was bringing something to it, or there was a character that had some meat on it. And the last thing I'll say is if you have to lose 40 minutes out of this movie and you don't cut the Guar scene, the Mark Guar scene, <laughs> what are you doing? I mean, I guess you paid for Guar, but I mean, that, that lifts right out. You got to cut that. <laughs> I still hate that. They want to even watch. I still fast forward past it. I just, I think it's the stupidest stuff ever. I don't know.
1: Well, there's a lot of like scenes in movies where people do drugs and then have hallucinations but again he's like oh here's this like special thing that I made for you and it's like got extra sugar and so they don't really like clearly communicate that it is a pot brownie because I think maybe it's 1995 it's like they don't want to go there because they're afraid to lose some of the audience but then it's like you just have Ethan Embry being like super goofy In that scene and so it's like unless you're like really paying attention to like oh this is like a record store these are kids like they're like 18 so probably some of them are doing drugs it just it felt very sudden and the hallucination like if you're going to go there I think you need to like spend the foundational groundwork getting yourself there Because they don't really like they don't establish that Mark is a stoner at all up until the point where he's like just completely fucked up and hallucinating that he's getting eaten by something on stage at this war show. So if they cut that, if they cut that out, the movie still functions perfectly fine. You know, they left that in because maybe some of the creatives are like, no, well, we have to let him be the stoner that he is. But again, like just show him smoking pot or something. It's 1995, yeah. like his his friend is clearly it looks like a stoner, like they they designed the characters that way. So yeah. it just didn't make sense to like pull their punches when it came time to actually like throw the punches.
2: Yeah, I guarantee I I feel like that was probably an MPAA note. They're like you want the PG-13, you have to make this vague. I certainly didn't get it the whole first 5 years I knew about this movie, I thought he was just A lot of sugar. I mean, they have the Sugar High song at the end. They've tied in with Sugar High. I mean, I just was like, oh, I guess when he's a lot of sugar, he starts seeing stuff. I don't know. I didn't get it for
1: a while. I mean, Sugar High is a good song, though. I'll give him that.
2: That is a, oh, yeah, that's a good song. It's on the soundtrack, too, actually. Yeah. And Burko, the guy who plays Burko, Coyote Mm -hmm. Shivers, he was Liv Tyler's stepdad in real life. Did you read about this?
1: No. Aren't they the same age?
2: (laughs) Yeah, I think so. I think he's a little older, but. I, he was married to let mom at the time or something like that it was kind of wild i did read about that i was like that wow. was interesting there's a lot of fun facts um, i think mary though is really great in it like i can you can see from it like even though her part is like uh, she's got a lot of like energy and she can she really like brings a lot to the role i like, know you can see why the next year she would blow up because next year was jerry Maguire after this so so you can see the seeds of like Here's charisma, and here's somebody who's really stealing scenes, and like is going to be the way she delivers lines, like when she's giving shit to Deb, like Shonado Rebellion. I don't know, she's just really good at that kind of stuff, and uh, I think she's really good in the movie. Everybody's good in, I guess. So yeah,
1: yeah. Renee Zellweger, Zellweger was great. I'm surprised that she went from this in '95 to playing a single mom the following year in Jerry Maguire. It's a huge jump in like the maturity level of the character that she's playing here. And she's very good in Jerry Maguire. So, I mean, probably one of the larger bright spots in this movie is seeing the potential of all these young actors that are going to go on to do bigger things at some point uh, in their career. And I think the craft was, what, like 96?
2: I was going to say about the craft, uh, yes. And Robin Tunney had to wear a wig for the craft.
1: Well, that makes sense head. yeah, yeah. <laughs> there
2: you go um, so I'm glad i didn't stop her from getting a role on that but yeah <laughs> they said she had to put on a wig because yeah her hair was still growing back so yeah yeah an intense move like you said that you have to shave your head for a role like that that young yeah. your career
1: That's absolutely and i'm sure she wasn't like paid a ton for this movie as well so uh-huh. it's like you really have to commit to the part and we have to have yeah. an actress who's willing to shave her head on camera
2: Although you know, I don't know. Maybe they weren't paid a lot, but I the budget was really high for this. Did you see anything like they? It was like a ten. I want to say like a ten million dollar budget. It made like three hundred thousand dollars, which is bad. But they they built the whole like uh, in a studio. They built the whole store. I just was that was surprised me for some reason. It looked so real, <laughs> but they, I mean, obviously they can build a lot of stuff. But it said so they built everything, and like the two story building was really just like made for the movie like they actually did put a lot of money into this but, yeah, 10, uh,
1: 10 million is sizable for 1995 yeah you're also like paying location a, yeah you're paying a really big cast though as well so
2: that's I mean, what i mean like maybe they got paid okay just because it was a big budget maybe i don't know
1: but yeah it only grossed like three hundred thousand. like that's whew, that's super rough That's i <laughs> think that's right it
2: may be lower it's it, they it made very little because i think they only they didn't open it very wide like They just opened a few screens and just let it go straight to video, which luckily kind of had a fault following over the years. But yeah, they just really bury it. (laughs) They didn't want it to come out. I don't know.
1: I see right here at the end of its run in North America, it it earned a total of $303,841 against its $10 million budget. So I mean... If you are involved in the creative process for this movie at all, you probably took it on the chin really hard the next couple of years with a studio looking to finance whatever your next project may or may not
2: be. I imagine that's why we didn't see a lot of movies from Alan Moyle, the director after that. probably He was probably in director jail for a little bit.
1: Yeah, they're like, oh, no, you basically just stole $10 million from us, so you got to wait this one out for a little while.
2: (laughs) Go ahead. I did read that, uh, I guess that the production company, they had a choice between this and Clueless and they passed on Clueless for this. And they just rubbed that in because Clueless made tons of money. Clueless was a huge hit and is a better film and a better script. I will give that. I will. Yeah, I will concede that. And set
1: in the confines of the high school for the most part. So it follows the traditional structure you would, but that's a good comp for this movie.
2: Yeah, it was like, which youth-based movie with a with the soundtrack, you know, is going to make a lot of money, too, are you going to go with? And they went with this instead of Clueless, and it's just, I don't know, two roads, man.
1: <laughs> Interestingly enough, the night before I had watched this, I was watching the uh, 30 Seconds to Mars documentary that really chronicles that bands – fight with the record label and kind of like the decline of the record industry in general. So then to the next night, see that like in 1995, you're only really a few years out at at 95 from the onset of the internet becoming available widely in homes around the end of the 90s, like 98 to 2000. So you're like five years away from the beginning of the end of the record business as we know it, yet this story is all focused around like the identity of preserving independent music independent music stores and that spirit of like this is a valuable asset to have in the community it's a good asset to have for kids to like have an outlet to work and to not be in a corporate environment and that's really like what's at the heart of the film is trying to prevent This independent store from becoming this corporate entity that's going to be like buttoned down Best Buy, for lack of a better word, where like, oh, you have to wear a uniform, like no visible tattoos, like dress code, all this stuff. So I I found it just very interesting that I'm I'm having these weird moments of like films that I'm not intentionally putting back to back have some weird connective tissue that I didn't plan on them having. So it was just really interesting to see that whole decline of the record business and then go back to 1995 and see like the record business at the height of its power and MTV at the height of its power.
2: Yeah. I feel like, yeah, that then tonight, watch the uh, Colin Hanks documentary about Tower records and you'll just be like crying in a ball. (laughs) It's so depressing. You're just like, Oh yeah. Like, I don't know why after this, I mean, being so into this movie, why I didn't immediately go get a job at a record store when I was 16, but I didn't, I should have. But And I didn't realize I didn't have that much time to do it. It would have been over within the next few years. But yeah, it's kind of, it is sad. I know that the screenwriter, uh, Carol Heikinen, I think is her name, she, uh, uh-huh. she had based it on her time working at Tower Records in Phoenix. She had apparently, some of the stories, I guess, are like probably punched up versions of something similar to the truth. So that's kind of cool. You take inspiration from a real life record store.
1: Yeah, my sister worked at the Tower Records uh, out here and her husband worked at Moby Disc, which was another independent record store uh, in the Valley. So, like, and I know a lot of people like in their friend group have also either worked like in a record store or in the music business. So
2: I wonder if they were into this movie. I wonder what they thought of it, if they saw it.
1: That's a good question, because it does have a good soundtrack. I would have to ask my sister's husband because this would it seems like his kind of thing more than hers. But um yeah. I wouldn't be surprised. He's He's got an interesting taste in movies that like, is not very similar to mine at all. So this was probably something that was on his radar almost 20 years ago now when he was kind of like the age that I am now. So it makes sense. Um, I want to ask you, did you have a favorite character in this movie? Cause you had mentioned this the first time that you had seen kind of something that was put together as an ensemble and it is pretty well balanced. For the most part, some there's some characters who like take the lead in certain moments and have bigger roles than others. But for the most part, it's pretty well balanced. So is there one person that like you connected with that really made you love this movie? Or was it just you felt like a part of this community?
2: When I was younger, I think Lucas was my favorite for a while. Like I really, Roy Cochran, I really liked his character. I I just thought he was funny and I he was in a way similar and in a way different than he was in dancing a Fuse at the same time it was sort of a combination of the two but I just really found him even his like behavior his just acting choices in certain scenes or the way he's dancing in one scene is just kind of offbeat and weird like when they're all rocking out in the back and like yeah I but as I get older I find like <laughs> I'm uh relying more I'm like kind of Joe Anthony Lapalli. I'm like more in line with him because I'm like I can see his point of view more and more the older I get I remember the first time I found out Anthony Lopali was Australian and it shocked me because I'd seen him do this accent in like the client this like several movies He, he played this like New York kind of tough talking guy. Yeah, he's always the
1: Italian guy.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, he's always been that guy. So uh, yeah, I remember when I heard him open his mouth and it was Australian. I was like, what is going on? And so I married Max murderer. He was in a lot of movies around the time that where he had that kind of character going on. But uh yeah, so I would say, but I I do kind of relate to what you're saying though about feeling like part of the community. It kind of felt like yeah, you were able to kind of escape like these are my group of friends. Like I get to hang out with them and see how the and it is kind of crazy this all happens in one day. There's a lot of material for just a one day. (laughs) But I mean, I like that format, too, because it's just like it's very movie. It's very uh, like a a movie timeline. So, yeah, you have a goal. You got to do it by the end of the day. Yeah. Well,
1: I think also it's important to kind of like make the distinction that when for the most part, when you're growing up and you're in school, your circle of friends exists like within the confines of the school, like your whole social structure is that. So it's not until that you go out and get your first job that like your social circle opens up to a whole new group of people. And to to set that here where that is their entirety, I think, was a really smart choice that, you know, obviously didn't work out for the filmmakers. But in hindsight, I can see why this has like Solid user reviews that is where it's like it's closer to a seven out of 10, but critics at the time like hated it so overwhelmingly that it's like its meta score and its critic score are in the garbage. Um, but with Joe, one of the things I asked myself very early on was like, what is his relationship to Lucas? Like, why is he acting? Like he's a drug dealer here. It's like, oh, no, you took my money. Now you owe me nine thousand dollars. It's like your employee just robbed you, like call the cops. What are you doing? Like you didn't even fire him. You didn't discipline him at all. And then later he just takes him in the office and like assaults him. So like, okay, now what's happening? Like, is he a father figure and is he an abusive father figure to these kids? Because that just kind of like comes out of nowhere. If you weren't going to kick his ass when you first found out that he robbed you, why wait until like so much later in the day? to be like all right you know what come in the office it's time to get like spanked basically he cuts him on the face so he obviously hit him in the face and then he comes out of the office and is like oh you know you deserve that right so even with that lucas still later in the film is like you're a superb manager and like he, so they they love joe as their boss and they don't want to have that corporate monopoly take control of their work environment because this is obviously a place where all of them feel differently than they do at home. Like it seems like it's a place where Lucas can be more of himself. Uh, Liv can hide from whatever's going on with the pressure of being like a 4.0 student. AJ can like commit to his art. Um, Renee Zellweger's character. I can't remember her name right now. Yeah. but Gina she can be like more of the the friendly slut girl that everybody likes uh so i think there is like good bones to this movie if that makes sense like yeah. the the foundation for it is not bad at all so i mean there's a lot of 90s white guy hair but you know so be it it's the 90s they're going to have that hair uh yeah. and i like the dynamic of joe being more of a father figure to them cuz a lot of the time when you get kind of stories with kids of this age it's always like the teacher is a very adversarial figure in their life and i mean you see it in like breakfast club and ferris bueller and stuff so to have um an older adult who is actually invested in the well-being and the treatment of the kids Aside from the assault that happens in his office, I mean, he did get robbed of $9,000, so, I mean, Lucas kind of did deserve to get his ass kicked a little bit, but, you know, that aside, he does value his employees. I mean, they give a job to the kid that steals from them, and then... Warren Beatty yeah Yeah, warm yeah. they end up giving a job to the kid that steals from them and then comes back with a gun which when i saw that i was like "Ooh!" i was like this would not fly right now you can't just have a kid no. running into a store and like turn him shooting up a record store into a joke like ugh. i was yeah. like i could see how this would definitely not age well at all
2: yeah he pulls the he shoots the gun directly in joe's face it's blanks but still he like fires the gun in his face yeah, that that's a definitely like you look at that and you're like, okay, this was the 90s. This was a different time. I wonder if that was also kind of a studio note thing like them. They, they're they like, we have to make it clear why he's not calling the cops on Lucas. We need to clear that up because to be honest, I kind of buy it just if you keep it at the level of he's their father figure and he feels bad. When it gets kind of hairy it's toward the end when Lucas is trying to like, is having to convince him to call. The cops. He's like, go ahead and tell him. He's like, no, no, we can work it out. It's like, I, yeah. And then they had the line at the end where at the funeral where he's like, Joe, like, rescued me from foster care. He like raised me or something. There's something weird there that I don't understand that dynamic. But I wonder if they were like, you have to add that line in because we want not understand otherwise why he's not pressing charges or doing, you know, doing what any manager would do. But yeah, he has like a different relationship with them, which is kind of nice in a way. Like a lot of these kids, like Dad, you mentioned, they kind of need, it feels like they need a parent, parental figure. And Joe is kind of one they can r- rely on and tell things to, even though they don't really tell him everything, but like uh, without feeling the judgment, I guess, that they feel like they feel from their parents. So that's kind of a nice way to do it. Um, I was trying to think if Corey, Liv Tyler's character has a heart to heart with him, but not really. She just gets, they have the drug thing, her and Gina, and then he just tells her everything's going to be fine and she freaks out. So <laughs> I think that's kind of it, but yeah. I do like the way they did those dynamics, though, with him and the kids. I thought that was a good way to kind of show him as a father figure without. But, yeah, I agree that the stuff about him not calling the cops is weird,
1: for sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was one of my first questions. I was just like, OK, there's got to be some other reason yeah. that, like, he's not immediately. Hey, my employee robbed me of nine thousand dollars. Get the hell out of here. I'm calling the cops.
2: So I do... He doubles his money. The first role, he right, oh, I know. Money.
1: I don't know, <laughs> he, he had that luck rolling for him there for a minute and then he got a little carried away and blew it all i mean he should have stopped and played roulette too like roulette pays off way better if you know it's black 22 put your money on black 22 and get paid off like 35 to one why are you going to play craps at two to one <laughs> come on lucas if you're going to go lucas. to atlantic city and gamble figure it out man
2: I know what you're doing
1: i wanted to ask you also did you like, were you aware of this movie before you saw it? Or was it something that you stumbled across because so, of your, was it your sister that rented it?
2: Yeah. So I only knew about it from having read about it in the Entertainment Weekly before, like the year before. And uh, I was like kind of excited for it. And I was kind of looking forward to see when it would finally come out. Cause I'd, I, I kind of clocked when movies would come out when I was younger, I noticed that it had missed the date it was supposed to come out in 94 or whatever, that first date I had. And then I never saw it in theaters where I lived ever. And so I assumed it went straight to video because then it just showed up one day when my sister rented it with her friend. But then weirdly enough, I did see, apparently it did play in theaters here in Nashville. I found out, this is really dorky. I found out, but I found an ad, an old, like. um, I used to cut out ads from the paper (laughs) where like the little movie ads that would come in the paper. And I would just throw them in a box. Like, I would collect them because I thought it was cool. There was one for Empire Records where it was playing at three theaters in the area. And I had completely blocked it from my memory. I thought it hadn't come out. So apparently it did play probably for about a week based on the numbers. I would imagine it played. Nobody went to see it. And they threw it out immediately or stopped showing it. But yeah, pretty much as soon as I remember they had the video. They were like, we're going to watch this movie. I was like, oh, this is the one that was called Empire. Now it's Empire Records. Yes. So it kind of stumbled upon it again that second time. But I didn't know much about. All I knew about it was it was kind of a hangout movie. Working in a record store. I didn't know anything about the specifics of the plot or Rex Manning or any of that.
1: We're gonna come back to Rex Manning, but I want to take us back first to the trailer because I've I never saw the trailer for this movie. I knew that it existed, so I probably actually have seen it. But I mean, I was like eleven when the trailer came out for this, so it it was not the kind of movie that I was going to be watching. I was like a little too young for typical high school type stuff anyway so this was not something that was uh on my radar really but let me see if i can grab where is that we got it
2: i don't know if i've actually i'm sure i have but i do not remember anything about the trailer personally Ah, okay
1: all right let's do it
0: Just let me introduce you to everybody. Uh, This is uh, Gina, Roy, Lucas, AJ. The staff of Empire Records had the coolest jobs on earth. Do you think the story is already written? Or do you think a bold and courageous act can change the course of history? Something happened to me last night in Atlantic City. Did you win anything? No, I did not. But Lucas blew it. Everyone knew it. You wanna buy Empire? Well, that's a good thing, right? <laughs> the money is gone. Where's it going to? I think it's recirculating. Turning us into a music town? I have to pay for what Mr. Brilliant here did. I'm the idiot. You're the screw up, and we are all losers. Now, five friends have one day to decide what to do with the rest of their lives. AJ loves Corey, not the whole story. Today is the day that I'm gonna tell Corey how I feel about her. That I uh love her. yeah. Do you think that it's possible for someone to be in love with someone else and not even know it? In this life, there are nothing but possibilities. That is so sweet. I think I'm gonna buff. Corey wants Rex first time at sex. Hey Rex, what happened to your hair? <laughs> <laughs> of to Rex <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> Who wrote the copy for
2: that? <laughs> got a rhyme. got a rhyme. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Rex's life!
0: Mark's raging mad. Best day he's had. <laughs> If I was in a band, they would not be doing this to me. Deb shaved her head and made out she was dead. I tried to kill myself with a lady <laughs> No, no. A teenager. <laughs> you did have hair, right? I was tired of being invisible. Gina did it again, this time to a friend. You get smarter, the shorter your skirt gets. I want to sing in a band, but I don't have the guts. Is this how your life's going to be now? You're just going to screw every husband? <laughs> I'm starting! Want to know more? check out the store. Empire Records open till midnight. This is Mark. Midnight. Empire mm-hmm. Records, featuring the music of Better Than Ezra, Gin Blossoms, Ape Hangers, Evan Dando, Toad the Wet Sprocket, and the Cranberries. What is wrong with you people? <laughs> Rock and roll. Well, baby, I don't want to take advice from
2: mention all the the musical acts and none of the actors
1: (laughs) yeah uh (laughs) i could totally understand why oh yeah people did not want to see that movie because it doesn't even tell you what the movie is it's like it wants to showcase the guy who wrote the copy for all these weird rhymes that they wanted to insert into it for no reason
2: yeah god that feels so 90s too like the way it's cutting those little pictures of them and like the just the copy on the white background oh yeah very 90s the pace of it kind of does represent how choppy and disorganized the movie is at times like it's just jumping from one thing to the other i was gonna say the one thing um that i knew i was gonna see when you said watch the trailer is i bet we're gonna see things that aren't in the movie in this because when they edit trailers they always are editing from like the first version uh before the actual so at the beginning there was some i couldn't even tell who was talking maybe it was gina like do you think we have the Uh, we can alter human history or some like thing. I was like, that's not in the movie. There was a clip of like AJ and Corey on a dock. I was like, that's not in it. Like you, that always happens, but I I knew it would happen in this case because of how much they cut out of the movie.
1: Yeah, definitely. There's, there's some connective tissue that uh, didn't make it to the, the end of the editing room cut. So.
2: I was also shocked when they said five friends, I was like, that feels to me like there's 20 people in the movie. But then I guess there are, he focused on five of them. I was like, well, I guess that's right if you don't count the adults. Yeah, I guess there's five. And you True don't count enough. Warren. You can't, I count Warren as a friend.
1: By the yeah, end. By the end of the movie, yeah. But they also included the clip of him just like firing off a shot with that magnum in the yeah. store. And they're just like, they don't introduce his character. They just like, oh, someone has a gun and unloads a shot inside the record store. And uh, yeah, pretend like you didn't see that. And the trailer's just going to keep going right on.
2: Yeah. Yeah, and then, yeah, everything, anything fast-paced that happens in the movie is in that trailer. Shoplifter, guns, it's all there. Yeah, riding a motorcycle, <laughs> eating this, of any kind of breakneck speed is going to be in there.
1: Mark They're... grinding on the portrait of somebody yeah. out on the back wall next to the dumpster. I read it was
2: Gloria Estefan, but I, I thought it looked kind of like an old Madonna, but I, I, I don't, yeah, apparently it was Gloria Estefan, I don't know.
1: But... Yeah, I thought Madonna too, just because of the time period, so.
2: yeah. The, I so I'm mean, of two minds about it I think it's kind of a bad trailer but at the same time because of the dated quality of it it kind of warms my heart at the same time like just the silliness of how they used to put those trailers together <laughs> and yeah but I do like other like and at the end remember you've got to buy this fucking soundtrack you got to do it
1: yeah <laughs> uh, I know one of the the reviews that I looked at mentioned Specifically, it seems like a movie or a soundtrack that's looking for a movie. Which (laughs) I mean, hey, the trailer definitely was like, look, we're gonna make sure that we include all the big name bands so that way at the very least we can hopefully recoup this $10 million on album sales.
2: But that's see that reviewer though, I don't know, they're not giving enough credit to how good some of the needle drops are in this movie. Like they have really good, I think almost every time the music comes in, I feel like it's good. Like when they well, I have two things. One is uh, the that free song when Deb's shaving her head. That was in the trailer. That's a good one. And then when they bring in Dire Straits, Romeo and Juliet, that's great, too. Although there is a weird thing with Mark like kind of assaulting this woman <laughs> like he won't leave her alone, <laughs> he's trying to kiss her while her eyes are closed and stuff. Uh, the woman listening to the headphones. so mm-hmm. As he's yeah, like he is, dusting he's
1: to... around her and creeping on her.
2: Yeah, he like dusts her foot and he's like, kissing her while she's yeah yeah he's a little bit a little bit too much in that moment for sure yeah
1: she also humor. doesn't have shoes on so it's like she's working on her ballet routine and then he kisses her bare dirty foot yep <laughs> after you dusting sure? it um you, you and should, uh... she, at first she looks like a muse like oh my god this guy's cute and that was cute and then he walks away and she's like oh my god what happened <laughs> <laughs> who is that guy gonna call her mom. Yeah, I'm just gonna call somebody, that's for sure. Yeah, uh, yeah. But I want to ask you if you know why AJ burns the CD with the lighter. Mark and him I like he vetoes Mark's like song selection, and he takes it out and oh, then he burns the I bottom it, of the CD with the lighter.
2: I think it's because they are complaining about the music, Mark's music, and they don't want him to be able to play it again. Mm. that's what it, gotcha, I that okay. what it is. I thought you were gonna ask why he's gluing the quarters to the ground, and that I cannot tell you. But yeah, he burns the CD, I think, because they're tired of Mark's taste in music and the veto thing, which isn't really fair because they have a system. They have the, like, Skittle system or whatever. So they should respect whoever wins that. But whatever. Yeah, they yeah get every, everybody CD. gets one
1: veto a day on the music.
2: Yeah. I think I mean, like, that's like, a good rule. Yeah, that's a cool detail that they put in about how they pick the music and stuff. I like that. And the funny thing about it was once they, they complained about Mark's song... They put it on, but they're all singing it while they're cleaning up at the beginning. Like they're all getting into it anyway, which reminded me of like when I was worked retail. When we would open the store before it opened, our manager would play music, and sometimes it was even though it like sometimes it's music you don't like. Just the memory of it. If I hear songs now, sometimes it reminds me of that, and it like kind of puts me in a good mood, and I want to like sing along, sort of, because we just heard it so much when I was working in a store environment like
0: that. So like camaraderie in a way
2: yeah
1: i mean i think the music is such a such a part of the dna Mm -hmm. of this movie that you have to like spend some time like clearly identifying each person's musical taste a little bit and there has to be some back and forth between what each character likes and what each character wants to listen to. And you even have the boss who comes in, and I think he ultimately tells them, like, it's too early in the morning for that. Like, you're scaring the customers, or you're getting the customers, like, too riled up at this point. And it's like they just opened the doors when they're blaring this music. So I like that they took the time to acknowledge that in an environment where it is a, a shared space and it is a record store, you're not having just like elevator music piped in you're actually giving the employees the opportunity to like pick the soundtrack for the day and that says something about who each of them are and there probably was a lot more of that that didn't make the final cut either because then you're dedicating just a lot of time to like hey this is about the music and not so much about the movie but i think you know i would like to see a director's cut of this movie uh, even if you like yeah even if you don't put all 40 minutes back in Give me like a second go at this where you're not concerned about critics. You're not concerned about any of this stuff and you're just going to release it straight to video as like bonus features. And if that exists, I would like to see it at maybe like two hours or so.
2: Yeah, I would be into that. And the screenwriter has made a comment about that. Like if they ever release. I think this is something a screenwriter can say if she knows it's never going to happen. I mean, I don't know. I take it with a grain of salt but she says a much better movie exists if they have all the scenes they shot which i probably would agree with it just i mean obviously it changes the entire pace of the movie but yeah i needed i would i would be okay with seeing more of those themes just because yeah i think it f- would flesh everything out all the characters out a little bit more put more motivation in their behavior like i said um i mean what you were saying about the music thing they're all having their taste they all get to pick their music, but then occasionally they'll just put Joe on the speakerphone playing the drums. (laughs) They do that too. They're just like the manager's going to be in the back rocking out on his drum set. We're just going to pipe that through the speakers for everybody. So, well, the whole thing about the musical taste for the individual kids is what's so baffling to me about, do you want to get into Rex Manning now or should we wait?
1: No, do it. Yeah. I was going to, I was going to jump into Rex
2: next. (laughs) Okay. So why they, none of them give a shit about Rex Manning except for Corey. She's the youngest, arguably, of the group because she seems to still be in high school. She's listening to his vinyl, which they treat him like he's like was like a David Cassidy from the 70s type guy. Um, it's just weird to me that they have her care so much about his music. They mentioned some show he was on, The Family Way, or something, like apparently he was on a show. And like, I don't know, it's just weird because they all seem to have such uh, contemporary taste for the time. And he seems very old-fashioned. They make fun of him a lot which is kind of funny i though that whole character is weird because i mean i do find it amusing and i still get amused when people say it's rex manning day on twitter every year when that happens (laughs) have you ever seen that before this movie when people do that by the way
1: i mean i might have seen it and not known what it meant
2: yeah every year and i forget the date because i'm a bad empire records fan but yeah they'll say it's rex manning day um because i think there's maybe a shot of a calendar or they say what the date is but uh the way that those scenes treat fandom is annoying to me. Like, they're really looked down on fans, like those people in the lines waiting for him. I feel like it just kind of is like a snotty way to treat those characters. Like, when they come up individually, like, we love you. It just feels like they're acting like they're stupid in a way that I just, I, I don't like the attitude it's taking toward fanatic. I mean, th- those are fans. You know, you wouldn't treat them that way. I don't know. I just didn't like the attitude of it. Kind It felt kind of well, weird.
1: The attitude of the filmmakers how they treat yeah kind of the
2: kind of the filmmakers and through that I mean yeah I was invited to the filmmakers like the way they have them standing in line and like some of them are like jumping out. it like I don't I just felt like it had a weird tone to it that I didn't it didn't feel very respectful in a way Mm. for me but
1: yeah because I looked at it like most of what we're seeing is like through like Rex's vision of it like he doesn't want to be there he thinks it's beneath him. Uh they're kind of like buttering him up, like we need him here. So he's he's like kind of like smug about the level of celebrity that he brings to this small record store. And it's almost like, you know, it's this big event, even though nobody that works there actually cares about him or the music other than Corey. And even his own assistant doesn't really want to work for him. Like she knows his he's a joke and his music isn't good. Um so like to me, when he's sitting there at the table and interacting with people, you've got uh, the girl that comes up and she says her name is Denise and or she says, make it out to Denise. Okay. And then he assumes that it's her. And she's like, oh, no, like this is for my mom. I don't even know who you are. And she's, there's another person that comes up in line and says like, oh, you're my favorite singer when I was in high school. And. He asks her, like, well, who's your favorite singer now? And she has to, like, pause because she, like, doesn't want to hurt his feelings and say that it's not him. But then she still ends up saying, like, oh, well, it's still you. So
0: yeah.
1: I think I, yeah. the framing of it is kind of like, I don't know. I've never really, like, been in, I haven't been in, like, too many autograph signing situations where it's like I'm waiting in a line for something like that to happen. Um but in being in a couple of them, I've seen that like there's definitely people that are like way more like into the experience than I am. People that are like, oh, my God, like this is so important to me to meet this person. I'm like, yeah, I'm like I'm a fan of this person. I'm going to get something autographed. But that's really like kind of it. I'm not like fawning over them in the same way. So yeah. it, I'm curious if in the writing and in the direction it was like we are set out to make these people look like they're stupid for lining up for Rex or if it's like, Hey, these are people that like really genuinely love his music and they're coming to our store and we just don't like his music. So yeah, I can see there is a little bit of a tonal imbalance between the perspective of the characters and then the perspective of the film as a whole.
2: Yeah. It just felt a little bit just like the way it was all kind of middle aged women. And it felt like, that's so much like less than. And I know it's Rex's attitude, sort of, too, that he doesn't want to be in, like, slumming it in the store. But I uh, just, I was, I don't know. I just feel like it was a little bit disrespectful to be like, if you have a line of these women who've loved him for 20 years, that's somehow not cool. I mean, that's the kind of the attitude of the movie, because the movie seems to kind of think that everybody's only cool in their early 20s or <laughs> upper teens. But yeah, no, I mean, it's a small point. I don't really know how they would square that circle in the writing, but yeah, I don't know. It was, uh, but the, everything with Rex, though, I think is generally pretty funny, I guess. I mean, I think the guy who plays in Maxwell Caulfield does a pretty good job. I've only <laughs> I know I'm from Greece, too, and this and I don't know. I think he's been in other stuff, but I have not seen that man <laughs> any other places. I don't think like two movies, 13 years apart. I don't know what he did after, but he's pretty good in this movie. I think playing that character
1: He is. I actually think Rex is one of the more interesting characters because he at he's at a point in his career where he's definitely on the decline, yet he still has a dedicated fan base that's willing to like line up and request autographs for him and like people that have gotten older and have grown up with him. So it is people that are like middle-aged. And so he looks down on it like I'm not the person that is cool to listen to anymore. He's like, I'm at a point in my career where. Like the people that are my fans are like in their middle age. So that reflects poorly on me is like, I'm not the hot good thing point. anymore yeah. like he was. And they established that he had a career on television as well. But like if you were to do like a spinoff movie of just Rex Manning and what his life is like outside of this day at Empire Records. And him being on kind of the downward end of his career, having an assistant who hates him. Like he has a makeup artist who clearly is putting him in borderline brown face in this movie. (laughs) They make a big deal out of like his haircut being different. Uh, like he's a very funny character to write for, I think. And it's like he shows up at the shop and he's like, no, I'm not sitting in that chair. And he's just got like a weird sure. issue. He's Like, I'm not going to sit in this chair and just like being a weird prick about it for no reason. Yeah. Uh, so was- I would like to see more of that character fleshed out. And even if you were to do it kind of like in the vein of like Anchorman, but a little less punchline driven, a little more satire heavy. I think you could really like find some rich territory to tell a funny story about an artist whose heyday is behind them and is struggling with holding on to like what's left of his fandom.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And it, it I like even his line readings are kind of funny. Like you mentioned like his first line as he gets out of the chair, uh the car he's coming up there and he's like they cut it too short. Like just certain line readings he has are really funny. Um it is interesting though, like to think about his character and it kind of makes sense. You think about like, he's obviously got a big ego. He comes into the store where he's, you know he wants to have some control. No, I'm not gonna sit in that chair. I don't like the chair but blah like, He wants to make sure, you know that he's got some semblance of control over the situation he doesn't want to be in. But then he ends up uh, getting seduced by two of the employees before the day is over. Like things just escalate so quick. I, I mean, Because we don't see a lot of Rex, so we just get like little fragments of moments of Rex and things are just changing every time we see it. It's like we really have to hold on for dear life with Rex Manning scenes, I feel like.
1: Yeah, when Corey first tries to seduce him and he's like eating his like candlelight lunch in the back room, uh, it's a very weird scene in general. It's not very well
2: written at all, I don't think. No.
1: And Rex is a character who, you know, has probably had groupies. You know, throughout his career, I think that it's well established that like this isn't something foreign to him. But he stops and he's like, Are you sure that you really wanna do this? And he's like, Okay. And he pulls his dick out, I think, and she is disgusted. And so it's like, I don't know, was like at first I was like, What did he take out of his pants that like had her terrified to the point where she had to leave? And then she explains later, like it's it was just her and she didn't feel like she was really this like Slutty character that she was trying to be for Rex Manning, and she had built this all up in her head, and it wasn't about like his, you know, freakish penis or something like that. But later, it's yeah. Gina who just like revenge screws Rex to get back at Corey. So they make him out to be, I guess, like a pop star to a degree, and having. A successful career having a TV show probably put him in a certain situation as the character of Rex Manning to, you know, have women throughout his life. So the way it's kind of disposable to him with Corey, but then he's actually like interested in Gina, is a is a weird dynamic, and I don't think any of that really got like fleshed out the way that it needed to.
2: Yeah, I feel like there was probably more, especially to that scene with Liv Tyler, I feel like there was maybe more lines and like something, there's some disconnect between ultimately what he says and her like just horrified reaction to him. I feel like there's, you get it kind of because she's, I think she's thrown by how just like uncaring and businesslike he seems to be about the whole thing. He's like, okay, well, here we go. And she obviously, it's nothing like she expected it to be. I just find that that scene feels rushed and I wish there was more to it. Like I just, I find that way about most of the scenes. I'm I'm sounding like a broken record, but um, yeah, I don't know. I just feel like there should be more there. And like, they're just, it's like, he's, he's just, the thing with Gina too is, I guess I get why he's, yeah, they just, I feel like they kind of switch it suddenly for him being like sort of a funny, jerk character all of a sudden being like a really really bad piece of shit suddenly like just because they need the tension you mentioned it earlier with some of the things that happen with the speed and everything it's like certain moments they feel like need a punch so they sort of sell out the characters in order to get that literally a literal punch in this case Mm -hmm. (laughs) like they just sort of will crank it up a little bit beyond reality just to get that moment which is movies i mean movies do that but i feel like in this one it just felt kind of jarring at times because Most of the time, we're in lighthearted comedy territory, Then it just swings us into serious after-school special issues, and then brings us back to the comedy, or or a concert outside. So (laughs) it's just kind of all over the place in that way, sometimes.
1: Yeah, he went from being like the punching bag to the sleaze bag really quick in that moment, and... Mm His character works as the punching bag who has a very high opinion of himself, even though like everybody around him, people that are literally like try to sell his music are like, no, this guy sucks. So the disparity between how he views himself and how other people view him is kind of what makes the character work. But then to like have him and Gina like hook up in that way just makes it seem like none of that was authentic, even though she is doing it from a place of just wanting to take revenge on Corey
2: for hurting her feelings, you know, just prior to that. And jealousy. She seems like a little bit jealous of Corey's ambition and how well she's doing. Like maybe even academic. I don't know. It just she seems like she wants to out Corey for having not being as smart and disciplined as she puts on. You know, like she's like, you are doing this because of you're on speed. Like that's how you what does she say? I could study all night too if I was taking speed or something. You Mm -hmm. know, she's and they have it out, but then they have a quick makeup. I don't like the funeral scene. I'll be honest, I I, I don't like scenes where people just come in and overhear things they need to hear at the right moment. <laughs> like yeah, she was you know, lurking walks,
1: in the shadows over there.
2: She <laughs> you know, walks in, hears Corey like profess her love for her, and she's like, "I love you." Like yeah, I don't know. It just becomes like I I don't know. It just some, that scene felt really contrived to me. Uh, we need to tie this
1: up. Uh, what can we do? Eavesdropping yeah. sounds like the way to go here. Yeah. And then yeah. Gina appears from the shadows and they. And then guess
2: what? The scene's a little nice. bit downbeat. You know how we punch it up? We bring back Warren with a gun. Yeah. That's what we're going to do. <laughs> he starts shooting outside during that funeral scene. Yeah. They the went care. dark
1: with the funeral and then they didn't know how to get out of that. So they're like, all right, yeah. well, a gun makes sense here. He did warn everybody yeah. that he was going to come back. So.
2: Yeah, I'll be back. You'll be sorry. Yeah. Uh, man, that actor who plays Warren. I mean, he's, I just think he's really good in that. Like, he was around a lot in that time period. I remember from, like, Welcome to the Dollhouse and stuff. Brendan Sexton III. Mm -hmm. And uh, I really, I really like him in this. Like, he's annoying, but I feel like he's annoying the way you you need that character to be. A completely different energy than everybody else. He seems, like, way younger, way more immature. I just, I like, I like the energy he kind of brings into it. Not so much when he's shooting, but before and after that. Pretty funny. I like Warren.
1: Yeah, I think you needed somebody who's, like you said, the maturity level was slightly less than everybody else. Because even though everybody else is like teenagers, they're all moving forward in their lives. They're talking about college, art school. uh, You know, Lucas is potentially going to be a manager at this news story. He's trying to, he's essentially trying to help Joe buy the store. So it's like very adult of him to do. So you kind of needed Someone like Mark and like Warren to to bring it back down to a place of like tangible, physical comedy. Yeah. And yeah, like you said, uh, he's very good and he's almost like. Like the annoying little brother in a mm-hmm. lot of other films where like he's just kind of there and he's only there to be annoying and to be grating for the main characters, but uh, he's excellent at doing that. Yeah. And then you find out that it's like, you know, he's coming from a place of most likely pain and something going on at home too, which is why it is like, okay, well I kind of just like want a job here.
2: Yeah. It's like that, that store is like a shelter for like wounded puppies. They are drawn to Joe and he'll take care of them. But like, you also, I think, need him to do what he does in that one scene where you, he kind of calls out the pretentiousness of the characters. like, You all think you're so great because you work in a record store. Like, yeah. you need an outside point of view because everything's been so inside their insular world and you don't really see the outside much. So, you, you have somebody come in and go, Why do you guys think you're all so great? You just work in a record <laughs> store. And, like, oh, but in actuality, you want to work here too, don't you, Warren? Yeah. So,
1: yeah, you definitely need that. And, It's interesting that it's like the youngest person in the cast that is gonna be that person to point it out. It's not the the rich business partner of Joe, who I think it's Mitchell, I think his name is. Yeah, Yeah, Mm. like he doesn't come in there and he'd be like, Hey, like get your act together. Like you just work in a record store. Like this isn't like this heady business you know like it's not his character that does it it's not uh the dude from the pizza place who brings over the weed brownie it's not any of the external characters it's not any of the customers that come into the store and like witness the behavior and say it it's this kid
2: who know yeah. I mean,
1: what like 14 maybe 14 or 15
2: so i probably yeah i think you yeah i think you're right about that his age yeah and
1: i like that it comes from that kind of place where he like looks up to them, but in his jealousy of wanting what they have, uh like a community where they can all be friends and environment where they can get paid to like have fun and have a friend unit, like he lashes out at them as if he doesn't want that himself.
2: Yeah. And I so when you brought in Mitchell, that just makes me laugh because I every time I think about him, I think about it at the end when he's like, he's got that uh, glass jar mm-hmm. a base of money which is all clearly ones <laughs> it's full of ones and he's like all right how about i just sell it <laughs> to you cheap he's like, there's like 60 dollars in that <laughs> it's like it just looks like not enough for what they're trying to communicate in that scene but they do have him say cheap but i'm just like there's got there can't be more than like 100 bucks in there but okay all right buddy
1: yeah, I don't know. Maybe there's another jar somewhere, but <laughs>
2: and had a, that was the reserve jar, the backup jar. Yeah,
1: <laughs> he's like, we got another one out front that's still collecting. I'll get you that one too. Yeah, uh,
2: yes. Oh man.
1: Creatively speaking, there comes a point at the end of the movie where Rory is upstairs at the desk, and he breaks the fourth wall and talks directly to the audience, which. They didn't establish like had he done that in the beginning when he's alone in the office and established that that is part of the movie, then, okay it it marries with that scene later. But this is just like, hey, the movie's wrapping up now and I'm talking directly to you as the audience. And like, I don't hate when that happens in movies. I was just kind of like taken aback by it a little bit because we hadn't seen that get established at any point earlier. So I don't know, maybe, you know, was that maybe something that was part of the character throughout the film that got removed? Because that would make sense if like, oh, here's Lucas. And every now and then his character will like pause the scene and like communicate with the audience. And then the scene resumes and you go about the rest of the film that way. And just to have it there at the end, like to kind of wrap things up seemed just very convenient creatively.
2: I don't know if there was more of it. My guess is not because I feel like they would have kept that stuff in because at that time, I feel like mid-90s, the break in the fourth wall seemed kind of popular. I remember almost, I wonder if it had to do with like, you know, the real world started in like 1992 or 93 and it became popular kind of quick. And that was the only thing on TV really where people were talking directly to camera, like doing confessionals to camera. And then I feel like you started to see it creep into movies, but I feel like they use it in that scene almost just like, like a one-off punchline type thing. like, this will be funny if he looks in the camera and says, I hate it. I don't really like fourth Mm. wall breaking in movies. I feel like if you do it, it's so jarring. It changes everything so much that if somebody's going to break fourth wall and look at the camera, they have to have something really good to say or really important to say. Like, I feel like you can't just do it for like a gag. And that's what I kind of feel like they treat it as in the movie. Just, yeah, I, I, I just that's not a I don't like the way they do that and especially the way they use it. Yeah, at the end of this movie, just like wrap up. I don't yeah. I thought that was a weird choice, but I guess I can see mid 90s stylistically, they were like, well, this would be cool. I feel like that's the whole attitude of the movie is forget what works. Let's just do the cool thing. You know, like we'll do what what seems would be pretty hip right now. I don't know. We'll
1: make it cool and we'll just figure it out on the way.
2: Yeah, fix it in post. Yeah.
1: Yeah, well, like I felt that Lucas's character up until that point had like a very specific way that like he spoke, uh, that he communicated, he carried himself. And then in that scene at the end, it's like, oh, that's not even the same character. It's like the same actor, but he's he's speaking in a way that's very direct it doesn't have any of like the cadence or the body language cues that the rest of his performance has so that's why i was like hmm this is a very interesting choice at this time in the movie and the time where the characters seemed to be like the most normal quote unquote but yeah. uh yeah i just was curious if maybe that was something that had found its way mostly to the editing room floor
2: And it comes in at the end of the song. Is that right? It's like the last button on the song. It's almost Mm -hmm. like they didn't know how to end that. So they were like, we got to think of something. But the way that he talks in the movie is almost like in a philosophical sort of way. So if they had that thread going through the movie with him talking to the camera, I guess I could, it would make sense because he's like, and in certain scenes, he almost seems like he's floating above the action, like commenting on things and like sort of doing that philosophical uh, commentary on everything. So it's like, if you kept that as a thread, it would have worked better. But like you said, at the end, they just throw it in there, him at the desk. Doesn't feel like Lucas, not something Lucas would say, but we didn't like the way the song ended. So we need something to transition to them dancing on the roof. <laughs> yeah,
1: I know. It's like you can just end the movie with them partying, like to the concert, like you didn't have to like cut to him at the desk, then go back upstairs to like the post, the after party celebration with all them dancing. It's like, I think we figured it out that like they won. And yeah. they're having a party in the street, and that's totally fine. I think what they ultimately wanted was, like you said, they wanted the cool thing. So that, like, we want them up with the sign that the AJ movie, has been yeah. working to fix this whole movie. So if we don't have that big moment with the Empire Records sign lit up, then like we wasted a lot of the time and the script with AJ like working to get the sign up and running in the first place
2: which is weird to me why the movie was ever just called Empire like it was the first time I saw it because at the end you had that perfect branding of Empire Records like the whole thing's written out in the specific font that's on the poster in the box like it's that font Empire Records font so why I wonder why they would ever try to shorten it because that's your whole thing right there like you could even call the movie Empire Records open till midnight
0: <laughs> like it's
2: like a brand in and of itself that title so I'm just surprised they ever tried to shorten it because you do have that long scene of them dancing in front of the movie's title. Like, yeah, that's all you need, really. I don't know. Yeah,
1: it may have been maybe like a little bit too literal of an interpretation where you've got Joe who then maybe like passes the store on to Lucas or something like that because they structured it where it's like he's the dad. Like, this is his kid. These are all Successful his kids. records.
0: Successful yeah, records. there you go. Hey, <laughs>
1: hey, HBO is making spinoffs again, so we'll see. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love it. Uh well since we've come to this point in the show now we go to critics' corner where we get to see or we get to read all of the terrible reviews well at least some of those reviews the pull quotes that made them really juicy and let me see we've got uh, seven here I'll pick five of them and we're gonna start with the L.A. Times because the L.A. Times gave it a zero out of one hundred <laughs> Jesus Christ. And it just says the sun can't set too soon on this quote unquote empire. And that's October 23rd, 1995 from the L.A. Times didn't give it any love whatsoever. Not even a one. This is a zero on a scale of 100, which is I don't know what reviewer was having a bad day that day. But they came in, they saw 10 minutes, they walked out and just like, nah, don't waste your time.
2: My God, I'm trying to think what 10 minutes they would have seen. To, I mean, there's something at least sort of entertaining in in every 10 minutes of the movie. That's really harsh. Yeah. I imagine that that guy, (laughs) probably these reviews are written by critics who had seen like four movies in a day. And my guess is the other three were very important movies. By the time they got to this one, they were just like tired and didn't care. I don't know. But that's, that's ridiculous. You can't find something to give it a little bit of give it a yeah you gotta give it something you can't give it a zero out of 100 yeah that's that's it's like one of like the just, worst movies ever made that's not a right? movie according yeah. to the
1: la times i mean this has an overall meta score of 30 so most of these reviews are pretty pretty bad but yeah. the imdb score is solid it's like six seven so i mean that's well within like my watchable range and i enjoyed it so i think yeah. the zero is way too harsh but uh ken eisner from variety was the one who said it is a soundtrack in search of a movie. Empire Records is one teen music effort that never finds a groove. So he sees that it's disjointed. At least he appreciated the soundtrack enough to give it a 20 out of 100, though.
2: Yeah, I I sort of weirdly agree and don't agree with that. Because when you mentioned it earlier, like I do think that the soundtrack fits the movie in a way that he doesn't suggest when he's saying it's a soundtrack in search for a movie. I feel like certain scenes are punctuated by great deal drops. And I feel like, but I do get what he's saying that it's about, he's touching on what we've talked about, which is like a little bit of the disjointed quality of it. So it's sort of two things are true. That should be a 50. That shouldn't be a 20.
0: Yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, the Chicago sun times they have Roger. (laughs) This is your boy. This is a 38 out of a hundred says if the movie is a lost cause, but he does say, if it's a lost cause, it may at least showcase actors who have better things ahead of them. So it sounds like he was a little bit on the fence of if this movie doesn't work out, then at least we saw some good performances from young actors who have a bright career ahead of them.
2: Yeah. What I wonder sometimes with movies like this, because the critics all know the inside baseball talk about, they know how much the movie costs, what happened that it was, Pulled that it got cut extensively, they know this stuff, so I wonder if that subconsciously colors their opinion of it. Like, I don't think I wonder if they knew nothing about any of the backstory if they would give these movies if they would be so hard on this movie. I just, I don't, well, I'll never know, but I'm just curious about like how that colors their opinion of it sometimes. But I do, he kind of had a habit of that, like, he would. If he didn't like something, usually if it was a movie with a young actors, he would sometimes like say, Well, here's good performances in this movie I don't like by a good young actor. I feel like he was good at highlighting young performances that he thought would, or young actors he thought would go far and end up being like more successful later on. So that's something, I guess.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's not the worst of the bunch. That's for sure. No. Um, yeah. But we're climbing the ladder. We started at a zero, then we moved to a 20. Ebert's a 38. And then with Entertainment Weekly, Ty Burr says the movie is too blatant a throwback to crass 80s teen fodder to really work. And yeah, I don't don't see it that way at all because of all the things we talked about. Like this movie definitely is aware of 80s teen movies that have come before it. But I think took good steps to be like, we don't want to be those movies. So yeah. to to say that it's just a throwback to something crass, I mean, I don't even think most of those 80s teen movies are really crass anyway. So that's, you know, you're starting maybe from a point of already hating this genre before you even go into the review, Mr. Burr.
2: Yeah, and it's almost not even part of the genre because I would never think of the word crass with Empire Records really ever. Like those, that doesn't line up at all. If you're thinking about like, smutty 80s comedy like this just i don't nothing about that ties in for me at all like and he couldn't really be talking about john hughes stuff because that's like that's clean that's not crass you know i don't know i feel like this guy just totally missed the point i don't even know like what was he finding that was crass in this movie it's very very pg-13 there's nothing i don't know i don't know what he's talking about maybe he doesn't like pot brownies or something
1: maybe he saw renee zellweger (laughs) in that apron and was like this is trash Two yeah, yeah. <laughs> um. Let's see. We've got. Let's go. That was four. So we'll we'll skip the two that are fifties, and we'll go to Empire and Carolyn Westbrook. She gave it a sixty. She said, "For all its faults, the good-natured, quirky humor that is, for the most part, offers ultimately." This is a weird sentence. I need to read that again. For all its faults, the good-natured, quirky humor that this for the most part offers ultimately makes it very hard to dislike. I read that twice and it still sounds like a sentence that doesn't really get it, but
0: (laughs) I
2: think I follow her.
1: She had a little bit too much of that pot brownie while she was watching (laughs) this, but look, she can acknowledge that. Look, it's not a perfect movie, but it is good natured. It does have quirky humor. And she acknowledges that like, this is a hard movie to dislike. And
2: yeah, yeah, that's it's where expected. I landed at yeah. the
1: end of it. I was like, how did people really like hate this? Because I had seen the reviews, I was aware that the meta score was very, very low. And I was like, How bad can this movie be if the audience has it close to a seven? So at the end of it, I was like, No, I can't I can't yeah. understand how
2: you would give this like a
1: zero or a twenty.
2: Yeah, I feel like she highlights the the best part of the movie, which is that it has sort of an infectious, good natured charm to it. That um you feel like I mean, you kind of e- even with this cuts and student interference, you still can see that it looks like they had a good time making it. Sometimes that doesn't matter as it doesn't translate. This time I feel like you can kind of feel it coming through the screen that they were having fun. Like it feels like a real group of friends. And that goes a long way, I think, in making it seem like a fun time and making some of the jokes land better. And yeah, I think she was the most fair, although she is from empire. You said, so maybe she had some sort of connection. No, I'm just kidding.
1: (laughs) Well, not, you know, we do this show because a lot of the time the critics aren't right about things. And like you said, when you're working for a newspaper, which probably really isn't the case that much anymore, you're working for a publication where your job is to go out and review movies. There's a lot of time where you're going to see something that you don't want to see. And you go into it with the preconceived bias and, you know, you're on a that dead- trailer
2: and you knew what you were, you thought you knew what you were getting. And you saw the trailer so many times
1: you're on a deadline and you don't like your job and your editor is going to give you some shit if you promote a movie that he doesn't like or he doesn't want you to really be covering. So there's a lot that goes into that. But speaking of movie reviews, you write movie reviews, don't you?
2: I do. Um, yeah. Last uh year I was my buddy, a friend i would made on Twitter and stuff, he uh he has a website called Music City Drive In It's Nashville based because we all live in Nashville. And uh I had read his stuff a lot and read the reviews on his site and I really enjoyed them. And I was like I, I wrote when I was younger, I wrote for like my school newspaper for reviews and stuff, but I kind of put it on hold for a while and I wanted to get back into it. I just kind of had a desire to start writing again. So I wrote uh, the first review I wrote was for Kimmy, the Steven Soder movie from last year. Mm-hmm. And I just sent it to him. I was like, if you like this, you know, check it out. And if you want, I can start writing for the site. If you are cool with it. And he, he let me do it. So I'm on there once or twice a month. Um, Music City Driving, and I'm Scott Cole. And those are my reviews when they're on there. So it's been fun. I really enjoyed it.
1: And what was the last one that you wrote? That's a good question because last month was busy.
2: Uh, it was maybe Knock at the Cabin or... Yeah, I think it was Knock at the Cabin was the last one I wrote. I also wrote a thing about Titanic, uh, the like the 25-year mm. anniversary of Titanic, because I went to see that in 40X, which was wild. <laughs> I'd never been to 40X before. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's an interesting one to start on. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. I don't know what it's like in an action movie. I know in Titanic, there's just <laughs> four scenes where you feel like you're being thrown around uh, at impact moments. <laughs> With the a ship hitting stuff, and yeah, it's kind of jarring, it for sure. But I, I mean, of course, the movie's still great, so that helps too.
1: Well, the 4DX seats, I feel like they need seatbelts because there are times where I'm like, I feel like I'm gonna fall out of the chair here, and you don't want to be really like enjoying your popcorn when you never know what's gonna happen. I think the first one that I saw in 4DX was Jungle Cruise which yeah, made sense because it's like the whole thing is you're basically on a ride. The movie is based on a Disneyland ride. So they kind of mirror each other very well and you kind of go down the river the whole time. So that makes sense. And then we saw Top Gun in 40 X, which also was like super intense. Uh, and I kind of wish that like, if that were going to be the experience for Top Gun, it would just be like a full motion simulator. And like that way, we can go completely upside down when we need to, stuff like that. So if they were ever to release, like you know, Maverick and Motion Simulator, I would probably do that, and uh, it'd be very intense. But
2: one of the this- cool things I was going to say real quick about the Titanic was when when they were doing the early scenes of Titanic, when they're down in the the contraption, like going around the Titanic wreckage at the bottom of the ocean, they kind of moved the seat slowly along with the that machine. So that was kind of cool because it kind of puts you like you were sort of down there with them, like just rocking back and forth. I imagine if they did it too much, you'd get seasick. But it was like kind of cool for the moment to like feel like you're in that apparatus, like going through the rooms and stuff. of the, the wreckage, you know, so that was kind of cool.
1: Yeah, we opted to see it in Dolby 3D. So, yeah. you know, still 3D, still good sound quality and all that. But the seats. Didn't move and you know I had a good time watching Titanic it had been so long I I saw it like three times in theaters when I was young and then seeing it again as an adult like I just felt so much more for like all of the people who weren't main characters I'm just like all the poor people that just died on this boat because of these rich assholes was just such a waste of life (laughs) and I was like wow this may be a lot more sad than watching Titanic Because it's like, I don't care about the old lady's story. I mean, she's at the end of her life anyway. She's got like a multi-million dollar diamond around her neck that she's just been hiding from these people. So it's like, I'm not super sad about her story or what happens with Jack and Rose. I do like watching Billy Zane be a huge asshole because he's great at that. And I think he's an excellent villain in that film. He's so good in that movie. But yeah, like as the boat's falling apart, I'm just like, oh man, like we're focused on like these five people. But meanwhile, like... Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people are just like dying every few seconds. I'm just like. Fuck.
2: And the first time I saw it, I mean, I saw it a couple of times in I missed the, the the shot at the beginning where there's dogs on board. That made me so sad. I missed <laughs> Dogs. I was like, the dogs are on the ship. Oh my god. Yeah, they're not getting on the boats.
1: Bad news. Yeah. Well, that's how we do the show. We we wrap it up with the sad story of people dying on the Titanic, and <laughs> yeah, cool, and promoting 4DX.
2: Yeah, it's appropriate for Empire Records, both of those facts, aren't they? <laughs> yeah,
1: if you get the chance to spend $30 to see Empire Records in 4DX and rock out, it's probably going to be an interesting one.
2: I'll be there at every screening, probably, actually. Yeah, well, thank you so, so much in. for your time.
1: Uh, if you have Thanks some closing, If you have closing thoughts that we didn't get to, please share them. Let me see. I wrote some stray observations.
2: Let's see what I had.
1: Without what go- leading, what goes in the music? Air. Yeah, what goes in the Music City Drive-In review of Empire Records? Do you get to do like retro reviews if you want? Can you pitch something and be like, let me promote Empire Records?
2: So, uh, yeah, so he's pretty open to like whatever ideas we have about stuff we want to write. Sometimes we were uh, he'll ask or he'll put out like a does anybody want to write about these topics? Sometimes we do it that way. But other time, like if I told him I was <laughs> really wanting to write Empire Records, I'm sure he would let me publish it, but he'd probably be like, I mm, don't want to write about that. Like nobody, <laughs> unless it was like an anniversary or something, maybe in what 2025, I'll write about empire records.
1: There you go. Um, start, start working on it now and get the screening set up.
2: The only thing I was, Oh, the only thing I had written that I didn't talk about was, uh, about five years ago, they had talked about, they were planning a stage musical, like a Broadway musical. Of this. And like, I saw some of those articles were still up from like 2018. They're like, yeah, it's coming. Empire records is coming to Broadway, blah, blah, blah. But, Here we are and I I hope it's still in development, but I kind of doubt it because I hope the pandemic didn't put an end to that for for good. But you know, that put a that may have pushed things off, pushed plans off for a little while. So maybe we'll still get it one of these days. Who knows? Hopefully. I'll go see it if we do.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'll go see it too. And one of the things that I saw like watching the movie felt like it almost had some like musical DNA in it. Like it almost wanted to be a musical at times and then was just restrained. So it would be an interesting life cycle to see this be a colossal failure at the box office as a film and then end up in development as a musical and then come full circle and have success as a musical would be a very nice uh, story arc for Empire Records and the people that saw it through to the big screen
2: and it would be weird to see this movie without the context of songs from that period <laughs> like if this story with new songs the characters were singing i I don't know what that would even look like i'd be so curious to see how that would work because <laughs> this movie feels so tied to the music of the time to me so
1: yeah well i mean you'd still have to set it in the 90s while record stores were still in existence
2: True. That's true. Yeah. You could still have it almost be like a jukebox musical at times, too. You could have some of the music from the time. That's true. I, yeah. The,
1: the new Empire Records movie will be just a bunch of employees that work at Apple in their <laughs> music distribution department. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It'll,
0: It'll lack a, a little bit
1: of heart. A little bit of heart will be missing. Yeah, definitely. It's going to be very buttoned down in comparison. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yep. Well, thank you so much for your time. I'm glad we could find uh, room to make it work in both of our schedules. Uh, I had a, I had a great time. Uh, talking yeah, me to too. You Thanks for having and, me in watching the movie. I, I was hesitant of course, because I was like, I don't know, 30 out of hundred is pretty low, but I was like, you know what? I'm just going to trust it. am I haven't seen anything. I haven't read anything beforehand. I'm just going to go into it blank and see what happens and i ended up liking the movie so i'm more on the side of it's closer to a 7 than it is a 3 so i'm Good. on board i'm glad
2: you liked it i'm glad you liked yeah. it yeah. Empire, Record- reviews are too harsh.
1: yeah empire records is definitely worthy of your love and your time if you haven't seen it show it some support uh be aware that it is flawed but keep keep some room in your heart and in your hopes for that musical that's coming down the line
2: yes exactly well said Cool, man. Thanks for having me. I had a fun. Yeah, me too, man. Thanks. Take care. You too. See ya.
1: Thanks once again to Scott for taking the time to come on the show and bringing me a movie that I haven't seen before. I'm getting a lot of those these days. And I added both his and my contact info to the show notes. And my sincerest thanks to all of you who took the time to listen to this episode. I know your time is valuable and you have a lot of options when it comes to your podcast. So if you spent that time with us, I really do appreciate it. If you'd like to be a guest on the show, you can reach me at nickatthesheist.com or you can reach out to me at badmovieswelove on Twitter for the time being, and that's badmovieswelove with a l u v. This show is an extension of thescheist.com, and the podcast is recorded, edited, mixed, produced right here in the home studio by yours truly. So until next time, stay safe, be well, and have fun
0: no matter how you get your movies.